Hi, listeners. It's Reed. You're about to hear a special episode of Master Scale called Five Surprising Ways to Rethink Your Hiring. Hiring is integral to scaling, and it's one of the biggest challenges. It's how you ensure sustainable and thoughtful growth for many different aspects of your company, like operations, profits, brand voice, creativity, culture, and diversity, grows and evolves in a sustainable and thoughtful way. But to the busy leader pushing ahead, hiring can feel like a drag on your momentum. Adding each new team member takes a huge investment of your time and effort. It can also feel like an exhausting game of leapfrog. To reach each stepping stone of scale, you need to vault over the next bigger hiring hurdle as you play catch-up in terms of the size and skill set of your team. But it doesn't have to be like this. Hiring shouldn't only be determined by where you are at now on your scale journey, but where you want to be. And this is where the visionary mindset of a founder comes into play, whether you're an actual founder, team leader, or hiring manager. Because as I like to say, you must always be hiring. And this is an aspect of leadership you need to fully embrace. This is why we've dedicated a whole course to the subject of hiring. Members can already dive into it on the Master of Scale app. And if you're not already a member, you can join right now by visiting masterscale.com membership. But even if you've already aced our hiring course, there's a lot to be learned in the founder stories you're about to hear. In this special episode, we're going to share five critical mindset shifts that will help transform your approach to hiring at every stage of scale. you got to have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally going to be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, so, so I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision, and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight? Have multiple Plan Bs. I'm Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn partner at Greylock, and your host. And this is Five Surprising Ways to Rethink Your Hiring. 
Number one, don't only look for people who are available. A growing team always needs new talent. If you only focus on candidates who are available right now, you're severely limiting the pool of talent that's open to you. That's why you should think of each new person you meet as a potential future hire, not just the people who send you the resume or flag themselves as open to new opportunities on LinkedIn. For an example of this in action, we're going to hear a story that Angela Arendt's former head of retail for Apple, shared on Masters of Scale. Before joining Apple, Angela was the celebrated CEO of Burberry. During her tenure, she led the luxury brand through an epic turnaround, doubling revenue and tripling their stock price. Angela herself became, by some estimations, the highest paid executive in Britain. Her retail acumen and her ability to lead teams caught the eye of Apple CEO Tim Cook. He wanted to recruit Angela to lead Apple's retail operations. He had his work cut out for him. We'll start the story from the first phone call. I asked Angela about it when we talked. So then you get a call from Apple. Mm. And that must have been very tricky, even though Apple is obviously, mm-hmm. you know, uh, iconic, magical. Yeah. You know, and of course, it always comes from the search firm. And so yes. it's so easy to say no. Yeah. And I said, I'm honored absolutely honored to be considered, but I have the greatest job in the world and we just bought our beauty business back. We just told the board, we're going to double the business again in the next five years and I'm on a mission and I'm, you know, we're going to be number one in the luxury sector. So, so no thank you. Angela turned Apple down the first time, but that's just the beginning of the story, which is why I'm sharing it with you today. You're about to hear a masterclass in hiring at the most ambitious level. It's about playing the long game. So, of course, then I get the phone call again, and, and I said, look, it's like only been six months, and I'm, nothing has changed. If I had a senior team, I mean, we just could do no wrong, and it's magical, and I'm loyal to a fault. There is no reason for me to have a conversation. And, oh, by the way, I have two kids in university in London, right? Yes. And a husband who thinks we're living there the rest of our life. So leave me alone. Yes. Again, lovely meeting with him. Thank you, but no thank you. It was quite easy. It was easy for Angela to say no even to Apple, until, of course, it wasn't. Why is it when your life is perfect that somebody wants to flip it upside down? Well, because they see that perfect and they go, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because it's true. Tim Cook saw the leadership and clarity of mission Angela brought to Burberry, and he looked ahead to what she could do for Apple. Tim wasn't scrambling to fill this head of retail position. If he had been, he would have and should have moved on. Instead, he was patient and persistent. It was like one Christmas or something, and then I I get a phone call. Uh So you're going to be back in the States. Would you just have a cup of coffee with Tim? Mm -hmm. I'm like, really? (laughs) I thought, you don't want to be disrespectful, and you don't want to be arrogant. You don't want to, you know, he's like the biggest CEO in the world. And so so I said, fine, I'll have a cup of coffee. What Angela would find in Apple CEO Tim Cook was someone with the ability to project a grand vision while making you feel like you're the only person in the room. But as persuasive as Tim Cook was face-to-face, she turned him down a bunch of times. I told Tim, I said, I, I'm trusting I'm not the right person. You don't know me. I'm instinctive. I'm creative. I, you know, I'm not a store operator. You know, he's so calm. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, we run the most productive stores in the world. I, I, I think we've got a lot of good operators. And, you know, mm-hmm. I said, but I'm not a techie either. I, I don't code. I don't, yes. I know enough questions to ask to be dangerous. And I know enough to get the teams to go where I want them to go. But I'm not, you know, very calmly. We have, we have enough of those. And, 
And so only after a while did I realize that it was really leadership that he Mm -hmm. was looking Mm -hmm. for, that he wanted the teams to be united. In this moment, Tim Cook knew incredibly well the importance of uniting his retail team under a leader who knew how to do just that. And he also knew how to play to Angela's sense of mission. In the end, Tim convinced Angela she was the right person. And because he had started early, he could take the time he needed to convince her with kindness and calm. If you're thinking this reverses the traditional balance between recruiter and recruitee, well, you're absolutely right. You'll be the one selling your prospective new team member on why they should join you. And notice how a key factor that made Tim want Angela for the team was alignment in values. Angela wasn't just a skills fit, she was a cultural fit. And this was why he was prepared to wait for Angela to be available. It was also why he was sure Angela would thrive at Apple. It's easy to overlook cultural fit as a nice-to-have, but it's essential, especially in the early days of your company. Which brings us to our next hiring rethink. Number two, hire for culture, not job title. Truly strong company cultures emerge only when every employee feels they personally own the culture. And a strong culture should be a true articulation of how your employees work at their best. It should be grounded in your shared mission, the thing you're actually trying to accomplish. It should be understood by everyone and built by everyone. And it should be built ground up from the very first day. This is why we named the chapter on culture in the Master Scale book, The Never-Ending Project. But the question remains, how do you get everyone across your organization to share your values without stifling diversity? And trickier still, how do you spread those values when you're hiring new employees by the hundreds? A lifetime of serial entrepreneurship has led Mark Laurie to make cultural fit central to his hiring strategy. Mark co-founded Diapers.com, which sold for $545 million to Amazon, and Jet.com, which sold for $3.3 billion to Walmart. Here he is sharing some of his insights about focusing on cultural fit while hiring. Until now, some of the interview with Mark you're about to hear has only been available to Master of Scale members who can access the full uncut interviews with Master of Scale guests. Having a team that shares a common set of values is really important, but at the same time, you want diversity of thought. You definitely need to have a diverse team so that there's not groupthink. And I've definitely learned that that can happen quite easily. Avoiding groupthink is an important aim of hiring for culture, but there are other huge upsides, not least making sure everyone is striving for the same mission. But I think it comes down to like common set of values, like finding people that, that you can trust, like have the kindness and empathy. You don't want to have politics that'll slow you down. People with big egos are doing things for the personal reasons as opposed to what's in the best interest of the company and things like that. Because I think sometimes it's easy. You find somebody with a great resume, and you're like, oh, this person would be great given their skill set of what they know. And you kind of overlook the sort of like how they're going to fit into the system. Mark's not saying you should completely ignore what's on a resume. Instead, don't make that list of skills and achievements the overriding factor in your hiring decision. I've kind of like opposite now. It's like fit into the system and then I'll make some concessions on what they've done in the past. Like they'll figure it out. It's almost the best available athlete strategy more so. Like find a team of people that you know, just gel, that are smart, they're passionate, they're optimistic, 
kind and bring them together that they'll figure out or hire, actually not even figure out, but hire. And this is one of the most important scale multipliers. Hiring for culture makes a team that instinctively get your mission, your culture, and your values and are keen to bring in other cultural fits. I knew nothing about e-commerce when I started or nothing about food or nothing about any, you know, but then you hire people that do. And so it would be kind of hypocritical of me to say, no, you must have this experience if you're going to be in this company to do this because the great people will find the people they need to hire. Before we move on, a cautionary word about mistaking cultural fit for cultural conformity from Flickr co-founder Katerina Fake. I mean, it happens over and over again. You see this happening that, you know, if you have women in the founding team, if you have African-Americans in the founding team, if your team, you know, includes Latinos, you have like a more Latino team. It just naturally evolves that way. And I think having a sense of who it is that you want to be in your company, deliberately choosing and building a team at the very outset will carry through the organization from the get-go. You know, a lot of companies try to graft on these diversity initiatives 12 years after the founding of the company because of some terrible event that has occurred to the company. And those tend to not be very successful. It's because the culture has already been formed. The culture is very, very hard to change once it's been established. One thing you do want to embed in your culture is a hunger for new knowledge and skills, which brings us to our third hiring rethink. Number three, create your own A-team. When you're at the cutting edge of a market with a new product, service, or way of doing things, you often need candidates with a skill set that simply doesn't exist. This is when you need to create the candidates yourself. Perhaps the most impactful example of this in Silicon Valley is Google's Associate Product Manager Program, created by Marissa Meyer, who told us about it on the Master Scale episode titled, How to Make the Star Employees You Need. You may not have heard of the Associate Product Manager Program, but it's one of Google's crown jewels alongside Search and Gmail. And I would argue that it sits at the root of Google's success. Marissa was convinced she could hire smart people and train them to be the colleague she was looking for. She was confident about it because that's what she and Salar had done. They had come to Google as coders and had become product managers. I was like, well, I'm going to go to Stanford and MIT. I'm going to look for really well-trained computer scientists who also understand how to apply technology. I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to give them really big jobs because we have really big jobs here in the product management group that aren't filled. And we'll just do what kind of happened to Salar and me. And, you know, Larry and Sergey at times just kind of yelled at us until we did what they needed us to do and rose to the occasion. I was like, I'm hoping to do that with less yelling. Marissa found her first APM hire. 22-year-old Brian Wachowski, fresh out of college. What project did Marissa choose to ease him in on? She gave him the whole of Gmail. We brought them in and gave them these huge jobs. Like They had to have been one of the more stressed out bunches of 22 and 23-year-olds in the world. Marissa named this trial by fire the Associate Product Manager Program. From the beginning, Google's APM program was founded on the principle of exposing new product managers not just to one product, but to many. At the core of the program was a yearly rotation that moved the new product managers between different departments, 
even if some of them were reluctant at first. The APMs, they would always be like, no, I don't want to rotate it. I said, look, Google's a really unique place because you can try three or four different formats of product management in one place. You can do nascent products, you can do mature products, you can do, you know, mobile, right? There are all these different types of product management. I was like, and usually to get that breadth of experience, you'd have to change companies, which is a far scarier move. But the nice thing for them is it gave them that flexibility without, you know, taking the leap of changing jobs. True to form, Marissa came up with an equation to illustrate the benefits. I would basically say a rotation is anything that can suffice the Mad Lib. I used to do X, and now I'm going to do Y, and by making this change, I'm going to learn Z. Right? So you could say things like, I used to do AdWords, and now I'm moving on to search, and by making this change, I'm going to learn the difference between having advertisers as my users versus consumers as my users. Now, there's nothing new about role rotation itself. This kind of training program reached its heyday in the 50s and 60s with companies like IBM and General Electric. These emerging titans of industry needed new leaders to keep up with the unprecedented leaps in scale and technology. They couldn't hire the people they needed, so they had to make them instead. Google's APM program became a well-oiled machine that found smart young tech generalists and made them into the product managers that Google needed. The APM program created a secret circulatory system through Google's famously decentralized management structure. Google had grown organically, with ideas and teams sprouting from the bottom up, largely driven by engineers with big ideas. This kind of controlled chaos is a great way to foster innovation. The APM program solved Google's hiring struggles and created some of the most sought-after technologists in Silicon Valley. And you don't need to be a tech giant to create your own A-team. Here's Jerry Stackhouse, coach of the Vanderbilt University men's basketball team and former NBA All-Star on Master of Scale Rapid Response. You can have a plan of what, you know, in your perfect world when you have all of the personnel that you want, you know, how things could pan out, but then you have to learn to adjust to your personnel. And maybe there's something that in your scheme and your vision of long-term that you got to try to tweak a little bit, you know, in the midterm. Great employees are made over time, and your winning strategy needs to take this into account. So I just think being able to be flexible and not be so rigid, and hopefully, you know, you can still build that personnel up to be, you know, what you ultimately want. Just work with them, and eventually they'll maybe be able to accomplish the things that you want. But in the immediate, you have to just try to tweak your plan a little bit to help them. Both Marissa Meyer and Jerry Stackhouse are legendary leaders in their fields. I'd argue a big part of this is because they attract A-team material, which brings us to the next way to rethink hiring. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just, like, share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was, like, sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be 
the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Number four, make your company worth their time. Okay, so you've rethought your recruiting, you've hired some rock star employees, and you're helping them grow into their roles. But what about their day-to-day experience in their roles? If you want to attract creative, brilliant people, you need to offer an environment in which creative, brilliant people thrive. This is much more than offering gym memberships or flex time. It's about offering challenge, autonomy, and growth. Building such an environment is how Indra Nui reinvigorated PepsiCo when she took over as CEO, as she shared on her episode of Masters of Scale. For big, iconic companies to remain successful, we needed the best and the brightest. So we needed the best and brightest talent, irrespective of gender, ethnicity, orientation, don't care. Building an environment in which talent can thrive goes hand-in-hand with long-term thinking. Indra knew this, and she also knew she had to be proactive in reinvigorating PepsiCo. Indra set about seeding the talent base with some key hires. I hired myself perhaps the best head of R&D. I think that's the best hire I made because Mehmood Khan walked into PepsiCo. He was head of R&D at Takeda. He said, why would I leave Takeda and his huge R&D budget to come and work for PepsiCo in consumer products? with such a tiny budget. I said, Memo, the big difference is in PepsiCo, you can make change on a large scale basis and you can taste every product you make, which you cannot in pharmaceuticals. Memood was sold on the pitch. It was transformative because Memood brought a scientific sensibility to PepsiCo and he was a talent magnet. Everybody who knew Memood wanted to work at PepsiCo. And all of a sudden, we had taste experts, omics experts, metabolomics, genomics experts who wanted to come to PepsiCo. And we built, I think, the best R&D team in the food and beverage industry. They reduced salt content, sugar content, reduced water usage, fundamentally changed many dynamics of our supply chain, and really made a difference to the innovation pipeline at PepsiCo. Indra looked for opportunities across the whole company to encourage talent to thrive. Here's another example, this time from the design department. It occurred to me that we needed to bring a new kind of thinking into the entire experience of how our product is conceived of, to how is it designed, what are the pain points in the interaction, what are the joyful moments of interaction. To kickstart this new kind of thinking, Indra hired Mauro Puccini, head of design at 3M. He transformed user experiences, transformed every part of PepsiCo's touchpoint with the consumer. And all of a sudden, consumers loved us, customers loved us, our retail partners, our food service partners loved us, and everybody wanted to partner with us. And pretty soon we were in the Milan Design Week, 
showing PepsiCo. We were sort of a hot ticket for young designers who wanted to come and work in consumer products. The most iconic designers wanted to work with us. Key hires like Mahmoud and Maro made PepsiCo into a place where driven creative people wanted to work. The hires were clear signals that PepsiCo valued talent and that it was willing to mold itself to them so they could go on and help mold the company's future. One way to attract prospective talent is to help them grow their skills. Rachel Carlson is the co-founder and CEO of Guild Education, a digital platform that enables frontline workers to get degrees and certifications as a free employee benefit. She spoke to Bob Safian on Master of Scale, Rapid Response, on why companies should put more focus on upskilling and education. We're also trying to get people to think differently about their own frontline workforces. When they have middle management jobs open, instead of looking out and saying, okay, I now need to hire somebody who went to the same undergraduate university as me, looking instead within their own organization and saying, instead of buying the talent, I'm going to build it. Rachel argues that company-sponsored digital classes are the key solution and should be embraced the same way as company-sponsored health plans. What I don't like and what we try and avoid really viciously at Guild is the term low skill, because I actually don't believe that people who get paid low wages are inherently low skilled. I think it's just often more a dynamic of the supply and demand of what we pay people for what they do. A lot of people do free work like childcare that we don't value either here in America right now. So when we talk about what we do, we're the only partner that can really provide upskilling to an entire company, but we are especially focused on the frontline worker. And that was so critical because in the 80s and 90s, a lot of the tuition programs or anything a corporation would fund in terms of upskilling and leadership development, it was almost exclusively going to white-collar white men in corporate headquarters. And so our goal was to really democratize it through the company so that more people could have the opportunity to go to school. And that feels more important than ever now that companies are in this war for talent and they can't just keep poaching from one another. People are realizing, oh my gosh, we really are going to have to build our own talent pipeline. By making more upskilling opportunities available, you're instilling a culture of lifelong learning in your team and your company. The half-life of a skill is now about four years. So if you're learning anything skills-based, you are probably getting about four years worth. And so the future of work, the skills are going to evolve, right? We're going to move from a world where computers know how to do X and humans supplement it with Y to then where the computers do Y and humans supplement it with Z. And that's going to keep moving. But in any of those turns, we also have to give people the critical thinking skills, the core business, the core interpersonal and management skills so that we can all work together and hopefully manage the technology than have the technology manage us. We talk about stackable pathways for learners, and that's what we're always thinking about. Lifelong learning will give you a more flexible team, and when you need to make sudden pivots, they'll be right there with you, even if they're not physically near you. Which brings us to our fifth surprising way to rethink hiring. Number five, don't let borders be barriers. Technology cracked the lid on remote working, but the pandemic blew it right off. Companies, leaders, and society continue to grapple with the ramifications. But when it comes to hiring, throwing off the limitations of geography can be game-changing. No one embodies this mindset more fully than my friend Wences Cazares. Wences grew up in Patagonia, Argentina, on a sheep ranch. He's now the co-founder and CEO of his fifth company, Zappo, a Bitcoin platform. In this excerpt, from the Master of Scale hiring course, 
we explore the approach Wences takes to harnessing talent from across the world. And remember, to get access to the whole course, visit masterscale.com slash membership. My CFO works from home in London, and my general counsel works from home in Santiago, Chile, and my head of HR works from home in Miami. That's Wences Cazares, and he's explaining how his team members at Zappo work from everywhere. In fact, his team is fully remote, and he can explain exactly why this is the most strategic decision you can make as a founder. Here's how he sees it. If you and I were going to play soccer, football, match to the death, you're given $10 million and you can hire any players you want. And I am given $10 million and our teams are going to play and whoever loses dies. Okay, this hypothetical match to the death is a bit macabre, but let's go with it as Wences explains the rules. And then there's a little catch, which is, I can only hire in Buenos Aires. And you can hire all over the world. You will kill me, Mm. (laughs) no matter what, right? And this is no different when it comes to a startup. Mm. I think that's the biggest advantage. It's just that when you have no geographical fencing, you will find better people, period. It's worth repeating. When you have no geographical fencing, you'll find the best people. Point well taken. One of the biggest advantages to scouting for talent globally is, well, it's a much bigger pool of talent to start from. If I'm trying to find the best goalie for my team, I want to be able to find the best goalie in the world, not the best one in my neighborhood. But casting a super wide net comes with its own challenges, which I asked Wences about. And then um, how do you do recruiting? Recruiting is very interesting when you're hiring remote. It's hard to find tools to do global searches, right? Most recruiting tools, you start by saying, where are you looking? Are you looking in Bangalore? Are you looking in the San Francisco Bay Area? Are you looking? And if you remove that, it's very hard. So we end up tweaking, hacking existing tools, but there's not really a way to do sort of a global blanket search. There's some progress, but it's very nascent there. This mindset of doing a global search for talent is in fact so new that the tools don't yet exist to support it. That means Wences and team are constantly adapting how they recruit and also how they interview. They're finding that the traditional interviews just aren't the best tool for vetting global candidates. What they're learning fascinates me. We have done some experimenting where we don't do any voice or video interviewing. It's all chat, right? And it has surprised me of uh, my own unconscious biases, right? I think that by doing that, we've hired some people that maybe if I had seen them or heard them, we would have not for silly reasons, right? Some people who are very, very intelligent and to speak in a certain way or, you know, English is not their first language. And for someone who's going to be working remote, this is going to be most of their communication on chat and on email. So judging how people communicate there makes a lot of sense. And also leads you to hire people that otherwise you would never hire, sometimes being some of the best people we may have. I couldn't agree more. Interviews are important, but they're not a perfect tool. You'll find some candidates interview well and perform poorly. Others interview poorly, but end up being brilliant at the job. Add in a language barrier or an unusual speech pattern, and you could end up missing out on highly qualified talent. So I love this innovation of interviewing through chat, particularly at a company where chat is the most common mode of team communication. If making key hires across a chat app or even a Zoom call is something you can't imagine doing, you're not alone. 
Tim Cadogan, CEO of GoFundMe, talked about the difficulty he had in making this fundamental hiring rethink when he appeared on Rapid Response. Been working for 25 years, and I'd never hired someone without meeting them extensively. I just couldn't imagine hiring a senior executive colleague without spending a bunch of time and having dinner and all the things that we would do. And I was like, oh no, Like, how on earth is this going to happen? But then, <laughs> like a lot of things, it's like, okay, you just spend a lot of time like this, and you just really go deep and spend a bunch of hours, and remarkably, it, it works. And I think one thing that does work, maybe it's counterintuitive, is you sort of focus more on explicit communication because in this format, the virtual format, you can't read body language as well. You can't read the sort of nonverbal cues, the gestures, the moving of the feet, the, all those subtle cues that are very important to humans in communication. They're there, but they're much more two-dimensional. So you have to be more explicit, which is kind of a silver lining. That's a good lesson. Whether remote or in person, hiring takes vast effort and resources, but it's also one of the most powerful tools you have for crafting your company's culture, capabilities, and the ability to grow. So no matter what level of scale you're at, you need to constantly cultivate the always-be-hiring mindset. I hope this episode has inspired you to rethink your hiring approaches. Don't only look for people who are available. Hire for culture, not job title. Create your own A-team. Make your company worth their time. And don't let borders be barriers. And perhaps what you've heard here has sparked a surprising hiring rethink of your own. If so, please share it with us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Master to Scale, hashtag RethinkHiring. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thank you for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we are at stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. 
Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our senior producer is Jordan McLeod. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Gray, Hailey Bondi, Marie McCoy Thompson, and Christina Gonzalez. Our editor-at-large is Bob Safian. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sapieva, Greg Beato, Adam Heiner, Emily McManus, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Anna Pisano, Ben Richardson, Mina Kurosawa, Sarah Tartar, Charlie Manessis, Chineme Ezequena, and Colin Haworth. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership. 